Hi, and thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, State Clerk of the EPC. We pray that God uses Dean and his guests to inform and inspire you about the EPC and how God is working in and through our global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian Churches. The motto of our family of congregations is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And thank you again, Rachel, as always, and thank you to those of you who have chosen again to listen in to this edition of In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We're delighted to have you join us for the conversation. We always are, and we're deeply appreciative. We don't take that for granted. I think we have more than 40 countries around the world that are tuning into these conversations, and we drop a new episode every Friday, and you can look for it wherever you get your podcasts, or just go to epc.org, and you can download it there. We actually have a banner on the top of the webpage where you can click right on it and go right to the list of episodes, and you can get caught up if you've been missing the great conversations with great people about some stuff that really matters and is significant. And we're going to have one of those conversations today that if you're a church person, or maybe if you're curious about why somebody is a church person, I think you'll find today's conversation to be a good one. Bob Garment is what I would call a churchman in the very best sense of the word, in the EPC sense of the word. This is someone who has given his life and loves the church and serves her with the gifts that God has given him in a way that brings him honor and glory. And he is also the EPC's chief parliamentarian and we'll get into what that means in a second so you can learn all about what it means to be a chief parliamentarian but bob welcome back to in all things well thank you it's good to be here yeah it's always great to have you here and uh, we oftentimes for those of you who haven't figured this out yet we'll record in the studio when we have different groups that come into the epc global command center in orlando and this week we have a group coming in And that group is who is sponsoring today's edition of In All Things, and that is the EPC Presbytery Stated Clerks. This episode is brought to you by them. That's right. (laughs) And that's why Bob is here. Bob is here because he's our chief parliamentarian. He helps guide and shape the stated clerks, particularly as they have questions regarding our church government and polity. And stated clerks are those people who help to guide and shape the conversation in each presbytery on how they do their business. Now, in the EPC, we have what are called three courts of the church. That's the way the Scots described it. You may not be Scottish, but if you're a Presbyterian, you at least have some spiritually Scottish heritage in you. (laughs) And the Scots called them the three courts of the church. The General Assembly is the highest court. Presbytery is the middle court. And then, of course, the lowest court in the church is the session or the elders of a local congregation. And at each of those levels, the church organizes around doing its business, which of course the EPC's business is we exist to carry out the Great Commission. And whenever you get people in organizations, and we have 640 different congregations around the United States, as well as in the Bahamas and Puerto Rico, whenever you try to get 640 different entities, and I mean, some of them are in the Pacific Northwest and up in New England and the Midwest and the Deep South and Texas and Florida and Puerto Rico. When you try to get all of those pulling 
largely in the same direction. That might take a little bit more doing than you might imagine, but we've all come together at the highest court of the church, the General Assembly, and have agreed that our mission is that we exist to carry out the Great Commission. And that requires a little more organization than you might imagine. And so we have a constitution that helps us with both what we believe in terms of our essential tenets and our Westminster standards, Westminster Confession, Larger and Shorter Catechism. But we also have a, a, a book of government, which kind of tells us how we should behave in terms of how we conduct our business of carrying out the Great Commission. So how we believe and how we behave are both codified in our constitution. And that constitution has been written and edited and rewritten and added to and subtracted from for 43 years. And sometimes it takes a little bit of interpretation, a little bit of historical understanding, a little bit of application to be able to see how it is that we train pastors, for example, or deal with discipline cases in a local church or help a local congregation understand how to have a congregational meeting, things like that. So our stated clerks are the ones that help all of the churches in their regions figure those things out and keep the business of a presbytery decent and in order. And so we have 16 presbyteries, 16 stated clerks, some assistant stated clerks, and we all come together at least once a year to discuss the issues before us and how we can better serve our congregations. Because in a missional church, which the EPC is, Presbyterian, Reformed, Evangelical, and Missional, in a missional church, we believe the emphasis of where the kingdom breaks in is in the local congregation. So these stated clerks come together to help serve those congregations. And that's what our guest today does. Again, Bob Garment was the stated clerk of the Presbytery of Florida and later Florida and the Caribbean for 30 years. I think maybe our longest standing stated clerk of any of our presbyteries. And just one day after his retirement, maybe in a serious lapse of judgment, he said yes to me when I asked him if he would come and be our chief parliamentarian. And so he's that person I lean on very heavily when we weigh into constitutional matters to understand the the will that God has for the EPC as a church. And Bob has also been a pastor for many years and continues to do some biblical counseling as a part of his ongoing ministry because there is no retirement in the Bible anywhere. Bob continues to, when he's not looking at the leaves throughout the Northeast and the Carolinas in the fall, he is serving the church, either in a counseling capacity or in this chief parliamentarian capacity. But let's start there, Bob. Let's talk about what does a chief parliamentarian do? If we had somebody who was listening for the first time and said, oh my goodness, that sounds like a very complicated title. What exactly is a chief parliamentarian? Well, it took me a while to figure that out because we hadn't heard that term before. But for people who don't know anything about our Presbyterian system, But I give them my business card because very few people ask for it, so I hand them out voluntarily. And they say, what's a chief parliamentarian? And I say, well, are you familiar with Robert's Rules of Order? They say, yeah. I say, I'm Robert. But (laughs) of course I'm not. Um, A chief parliamentarian basically is a guide to our systems and processes and helping people kind of unravel some of the intricacies of it for a mission issue that does not have something in the index that says, here's how you do it. To let them know what the order of events is, what is the proper process so that everything goes smoothly. And so uh, you know, parliamentarian basically 
in most organizations is someone who is at the meeting to make sure that everything is done according to the process. My role, though, goes beyond meetings. It's really talking with the other stated clerks and other uh, officers within the church to help them understand the best way to get from point A to point B in applying the biblical call on our lives to the mission that God has put before us. And there's a good way to do it, and there's a way that fails. Right. And so I'm sort of the tour guide to go through, and it's, it sounds boring when you say chief parliamentarian, but it's really Especially very if you say it like that. Well, I mean, you do. That, you have to yeah. say it with this, this gravitas with voice. Gravitas but it's an occasion when you look at a missional opportunity and say, how do we do this in a way that is pleasing to God, that reflects our biblical standards and our doctrinal statements, but gets us there in an orderly manner that is sustainable? So it's sometimes just wiring the system and getting through all of the ins and outs so that it's done properly and doesn't backfire on us. Right. So here's the famous quote. Okay. You 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 said this what maybe it was about two years ago. I think you made this. You said this. I, it just I blurted it out, and then when I heard it back on the recording, I thought, "Oh, that's huh, good. I, I like that. I wonder where that came <laughs> that's from." Right. <laughs> so we went back and captured it, and we've been saying it again and again. But this is attributable to you. Polity is the means by which we apply scripture and our confessional standards to meet the mission to which God has called us. Let me just read that one more time so you can let that soak in. Polity, and I do want to talk for a second, Bob, about the difference between polity, our church government as governance and polity, versus being like legal or or laws, because laws are oftentimes very black and white and sometimes polity is maybe sometimes a little more gray mm-hmm. sometimes okay so polity is the means by which we apply scripture and our confessional standards to meet the mission to which god has called us so talk to us a little bit about this missional polity one of the things about the entire protestant reformation but especially those of us in the reformed tradition and the presbyterian tradition is that we value doing things in an orderly fashion so that we can replicate them over and over again. How do you start a church? Well, you do it the same way each time. How do we govern a church? We do it the same way each time in each place. And the idea behind our polity is not to make laws to restrict, but to make a process that works and is always the same so that if I were to move from South Florida to the Bahamas— wouldn't be much difference, same climate. <laughs> but I, I would know that that church is going to do things the way I did in South Florida. If I go to Seattle, if I go anywhere in our denomination, we're going to do things the same way in order to accomplish our local mission and our international mission. So polity is not so much rules to keep people in line, but it's a process by which we get to accomplish what we need to do and do it properly, and in a way that we can replicate. It's not just make it up as you go along. Right. And that's one of the things that the early Presbyterians were famous for. And I understand that King George referred to the American Revolution as the Presbyterian uprising <laughs> because we were looking for a governance, a way of doing things that had a constitution behind it that protected everybody, the, the people in lower courts from the ones in the upper courts, and made us all... Equal but organized, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It also could be King George may have said that because you know the Presbyterians are just notoriously stubborn. I mean, yes, that's the other part, this, and we don't like authority. This, we have a tendency to, to to push back against things like kings. Sometimes when I'm trying to explain what a stated clerk is, I say, "Well, the Scots are everything that wasn't English." And the English had bishops, and the Scots thought, no bishops for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, but it, it really does flow out of our But a theo- corporate bishop is okay. That's exactly, well, and that's what Calvin said. Yeah. Calvin actually said that the bishop has no authority in the office itself, but the authority that's derived from the governance of the presbyters. Mm-hmm. So the presbyters gather, the elders, mm-hmm. they make these decisions, believing what God's will is, and then it's the stated clerk's job to carry those things out we don't get to make up our own stuff we actually carry out the the will of the assembly as it's been discerned and so i think polity is a a way in which it helps us do that Mm -hmm. it helps us serve the local church to get the great commission done at the end of the day right and the polity does not belong to whoever's interpreting it it's there it's fixed until we need to adjust it for the mission because some of the people listening to this may have come out of other presbyterian churches And I can remember being in one of those where if the stated clerk says, I want you to do it this way, it was like the the voice of the bishop. Right. You did it. Our system is that when you ask a stated clerk for guidance, he'll say, well, you know what you want to accomplish. Here are some of the ways you can do that. This way might work better than that way, but here's what our polity, our organizational structure allows you to do and gives you the freedom to do. When you go back to that whole idea of order, I mean, all of this comes out of our theology, right? So from Genesis, you have the spirit hovering over the chaos, bringing order, and out of that order brings life. And so the idea of bringing order into the chaos to bring life is a biblical notion. Mm -hmm. The idea of not having too much authority vested in any one person comes out of our understanding of depravity. So a lot of our theology has given birth to a very practical system that we believe is biblical. I mean, all the way back to Moses and his delegating when Jethro came and gave him the business, all the way to what we see in the book of Acts and Jesus's own model of gathering the 12. We see this distributive model of leadership where there's wisdom in the counsel of the godly, the scripture says. And sometimes they come up with ideas that no one has ever thought of before, such as when Paul went to Jerusalem to ask the leaders of the church there, a corporate group, and says, the Gentiles are coming to faith. What must they do to be a part of the church? And you may remember that they said, well, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols or or with the blood in it, and refrain from sexual immorality. That was pretty loose polity, but that was the first actual (laughs) polity that said, basically, you're going to have Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the same congregations Here's what I think the Gentiles need to understand so that they don't just offend their Jewish brothers. Right. And so they can become one congregation. That was one of the first, I think, statements of polity. This is the way we're going to do things together in unity. Well, that's connecting us back to the scriptures and to our tradition is a huge help. But as we move forward, Bob, you love serving the church because that polity provides for missional opportunity and you see churches that are getting after the Great Commission. What is it about resourcing the stated clerks, helping a congregation navigate through a place where they've never been before to try to get to their desired missional destination? What is it about those things that kind of fires you up, that you love doing? I mean, 
you delight in handling some of these calls and giving people. And you delight in handing them off to me. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I, I think part of it is you mentioned earlier in the introduction that I'm still a pastoral counselor. And I think that is kind of the center of my heart's desire in everything to help people build lasting relationships within the church and to help the churches themselves heal from upheaval. There are all sorts of things that can challenge a congregation. There are things that can challenge an entire presbytery. And it's fine to let people know, here's how our polity works. Here are the steps you take to correct things that have gone wrong. But at the same time, I get to talk with all of the people who are involved in the situation and be able to help them reconcile relationships because difficulties in the church can tear relationships Mm. apart. Mm. But we are above all else. We are a very relational denomination. Mm. Mm. Um, The fact that we don't have people who are the gurus, individual overlords, if you will, means that we come together and we counsel together and we say, what is the best way to do this? Here's our polity. How do we apply this so that it actually heals relationships, actually brings people together? And some of the touchiest situations, I'm being very vague here because they're not for publication uh, across the, the, our global outreach, but there are some very touchy situations that can arise in a church or in a presbytery. And if I can get the people together and say, this is what God wants from us, how do we get there? And look at our polity and say, well, here are some of the means that we have at our disposal to make this come together and make people start a fresh relationship together. So I want to dig down on that a little bit, Bob, because I think you hit on something that is absolutely seminal. As I've been in this position now for three years, and I've been in the APC for about 15, I think to to do this position well, I need to become a student of the APC. I I have to really love who God made her to be, not who either myself or somebody else wishes that she was. And I think that's a challenge because I think in the last 10 years, we've had people coming from other denominations into the EPC. We had a whole wave of folks coming out of the mainline denomination years ago. And more recently, we've had a wave of people coming out of the PCA, which is another Presbyterian denomination. And unintentionally, I think a lot of people bring their stuff with them. When they come, they maybe don't even know that they're doing it. And sometimes it's pain and hurt, but sometimes it's a way of doing things or an ethos or a culture that you've been formed and shaped by and maybe even embraced um, that you bring with you that may not necessarily be the EPC's way of doing things or culture. So, for example, a lot of other Presbyterian denominations love to really go after it at the highest court, at their general assembly. Mm -hmm. They really debate down in the weeds on on things, and it really becomes a battle, really. And we've just never done that. We have our conversations before we get to general assembly, either in the lower courts or in permanent committees. Our founders kind of wanted us, when we came together, to do the business of the outward expression of the church, which was Mm -hmm. the Great Commission. But I think you hit on something that over the last number of months, I've been thinking about how deeply important this is. The Ed Davises and the Andrew Jumpers and the Bart Hesses and all of those people who are there at the founding, it really was about relationship. Yes. And I think that's the thing that is so important about our culture is that we have this common theology centered around the Westminster Confession 
with a gracious sort of ethos about us because we have this list of essentials that gives us room to agree to disagree on secondary matters. But that permeates through the organization, allowing us to have relationships. And when we get stuck, we've got this very generous polity to help unstuck us yes, <laughs> so that we can get on with doing the business of the church. Is that right? Yes. And one of the things you and I have talked about is that when you look through our book of order, book of government, for instance, so often it will use words like ordinarily or should. Now, those aren't great legal words. Like ordinarily. No, but they are great relational words. There you go. And here's why. We look at the structures we put together to give us order and direction, like a roadmap. But when we say ordinarily, we recognize there will be some things that would come up that are important to the mission that are not going to work well with the always words. But if we say, ordinarily, this is how you do it. In this situation, you can make an exception. You've got some wiggle room. It's not overly tightened down to where we become legalistic and say, you can't do that because it says you can't. Rather, this is the way we have structured it because this is the way it generally works. But if you have something in your mission that you need to accomplish, and the polity, if you say always, should, must, won't get you there, if it's not violating the scriptural and confessional standards of the church, you do have some options. You have to be very careful about it, but I would rather have things too loose than too tight, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think our founders wired that into our DNA. Yes, uh, and, and one of the tricky things about the EPC that I love is I tell people we walk a tightrope because there are some beliefs and doctrines that are essential. And our Westminster Confession is very clear about what we believe. But then we also say, but in non-essentials, liberty and some people who come in with an ethos of a different background, they don't know how to handle that because how can you say a doctrine is not essential? Well, it's essential to have a doctrine, but just you get three people in the room and they may, they may be four different opinions, biblically sound of what exactly does that mean? How do we do that? How often do you serve communion? How do you go about serving communion? Is intention okay? Should people come forward? Should they sit in there? It's how you do things and, and how you interpret things that can be non-essential. Some people come from an ethos where that is just anathema to them. And one of the first things they want to do is tell us that everything is essential. And it's not. There are core values that we have, core doctrines that we have. And the fact that we don't make everything a legalistic template is what makes us I have more success at relationships. You can see a particular doctrine in a slightly different light that is biblically defensible than the person next to you in the pew. And God does not fall off his throne because we are both, to the extent of our ability, trying to live in a way that is absolutely pleasing to God. And I think that requires a certain degree of humility. Yes. And I always tell people the secondary issues aren't unimportant. And some of the issues that we choose to agree to disagree on are hugely important. Mm -hmm. But we've decided that we won't separate on those things or we won't become strident on those things. We won't break relationship on those things, right? But some of them are, are super 
super important matters, the uh, second coming of Christ. Uh, yes. The, the historic bodily second return of Christ is essential. It, it's core. Now, how you understand that, whether you're an amillennial or a postmillennial or premillennial, there's room for us to have robust conversation. Yes. And I always tell people this way. I think in the EPC, what distinguishes us is that on those matters where we might begin to disagree with humility as kind of the air that we breathe, the undergirding foundation of the conversation, I always tell people, here's the difference. On those issues for us, it's not a question of biblical fidelity. Mm-hmm. It's a question of biblical interpretation. Yes. So you and I can look at the same passage, both have the same view of scripture. And if we come to different interpretations of that text, we can agree to disagree and be humble enough to say, well, I have strong convictions that this is what this says, but I have to hold out that perhaps, Bob, maybe you're, maybe you're right. And so I'm not going to separate from you. A little humility yes. allows me to have that conversation with you where I'm listening rather than trying to convince and prove you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about what kind of things are in front of the EPC right now. If a elder is listening in from one of our congregations and they go, well, what are the governance or polity issues, the big things that are facing the EPC right now? We have two descending overtures that are going back to our presbyteries. Can you give us just a real quick flyby on those? Well, the first one is just sort of almost a preface to our book of discipline. One of the things that is confusing when you have a book of discipline for ecclesiastical process or discipline is that some people will mistake that as replacing a recommendation to work with the magistrates, with the officials of our law enforcement in states, that you don't have a case of suspected abuse in a church and say, we'll handle that with ecclesiastical law. No, because we believe that it's essential to let the authorities take over when there's a strong possibility of some sort of abuse going on in the church, whether it's abuse of a child or domestic abuse or anything like that. And so we have just added in a statement at the beginning that says, I don't remember the exact wording. I'm very bad at quoting myself because I helped design that (laughs) with some of our attorneys. But it's basically a, a statement that says, This book of discipline does not supersede or supplant our obligation to report abuse to the proper authorities according to the laws of our area. Just remind people that in some ethos, again, as some denominational and and doctrinal ethos, people believe that, well, we don't have to bring the police in because there might be a crime committed. And this is what we see as having gotten other churches in very difficult situations. Because they say, well, that's a church matter. No, there are some things that go beyond ecclesiastical law and become a matter for the authorities to look into for the protection of those who might be the victims of abuse. Right. And the idea came, I think our, our, some of our people in the Ministry of Vocations Committee were having a conversation around this. The national leadership team took a shot at some language, but the final language was written by a bunch of really smart attorneys. Yes. <laughs> yes. So they were looking at how to protect not only the victim, 
but to make sure our book of discipline protected the local congregation as well. So this isn't going to open us up to a can of worms. This is actually going to give us more clarity and direction and saying, look, there is ecclesial process, which we need to probably continue to improve upon, but that doesn't excuse in cases of abuse, the civil process. And we think it's a kind of a both and there. Yes. And, and the attorneys have done a great job of putting together kind of the language that helps guide us in that. So there's a second uh, descending overture real quick, and which that, is that kind of a really slam dunk, corrective right? one. Um, so when we are, are adjusting our polity to meet a need, we sometimes get one section right, and we forgot this another section that is contradictory to it. Nobody's even asked about it for years, but it pops up. And in this one, under the description of a board of deacons, said if, if you give them the responsibility to do the financial matters of the church, then they are responsible for an annual audit, the annual audit. And it came out of a desire that churches would do some sort of a financial audit just to make sure that everything is the way it should be. But it looked like it was a responsibility. But nowhere did it say anything about the session is required to have an annual audit. Which ultimately the session is and responsible. And the session has full responsibility for right. the finances of the church. So this descending overture is to delete that wording. And in a second section to reinforce the understanding that the session and the session alone is responsible for the financial planning, budgeting, and financial responsibility for the church. Okay, so those descending overtures came from General Assembly. They're descending to the lower courts, middle court, which is the presbyteries, and they had their first readings of those this fall. Uh, one is even actually, I think Florida and the Caribbean actually voted already. I think other presbyteries will be voting this winter. I think those are both probably slam dunks. I think yes. those are pretty easy. Do you see any other one or two things on the horizon, either at the state of clerks meeting or coming up to next year's GA that you want to put on the notice that people that are, that are out there percolating? Well, generally the things that catch my attention, and sometimes the state of clerks kind of work at their conference to talk through some of these things. One of those is what is the status of a retired minister? And in one part of our book of government, it talks about retired ministers are active members of the presbytery, but in another section it says they aren't. And the actual uh, I philosophy love it. behind I love it when that happens. That's yeah, always fun. It is. It's, uh, and then the ministerial manual also has it one way and not the other. It actually has it the wrong version. And so we're trying to straighten that out, and we're looking at wording that would make sure that presbyters understand that when a minister retires, if he does not have an approved call, he becomes an associate member of the presbytery, which gives him full voice. Serve on committees? Serve on committees. He can make motions if he wants. He just doesn't, does not vote. And the, the philosophy behind that is so that we don't get this large disparity of too many teaching elders and not enough ruling elders in a presbytery making decisions when a large number of them are retired teaching elders who are not really answerable to any sort of a call. Right. So we want to straighten that out. And uh, we have some possible wording coming along. The other one that I think is important is we have a, a very strong desire to have transitional ministers, transitional pastors available for churches that have a, a vacant pulpit, especially if they've had a long-term beloved pastor who retires. A transitional pastor is an essential tool in preparing them for the next pastor. And we made it a, a call but in the call of a transitional pastor from another denomination, it says that they come to the presbytery and must be received as a member of the EPC into that presbytery. On the other hand, when a transitional pastor who's already in the EPC wants to serve in a church for a season, he doesn't even have to change presbyteries. But we want these other people to change whole denominations, and that makes it harder to get some of 
our people from other reform backgrounds to serve as transitional pastors to some of our EPC congregations. So that's one of the ones we're trying to work on wording that makes it a little bit easier to make use of transitional pastors from outside the EPC. Okay. So those are two items that will be coming probably before the 44th General Assembly. Uh, Well, let's land uh, and finish our conversation today because I know this is really close to your heart, Bob. Before we finish, what do you love about this denomination or this family of churches that you've been called to serve? And what would you want people to know about her? First of all, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church is the most loving family of believers I have ever encountered, ever, ever, ever. The ethos of the EPC is, first of all, love one another as Christ loves us. And we always approach these things, even if we have very strong opinions on how to do something, we approach it as brother and sister to brother and sister, co-workers in the kingdom of God. I also like the idea that there's a unity that is based on biblical truth. There are denominations that have a great unity, but it's based on whatever the world is talking about now. It's based on popular public opinion. We seek a unity that says, you may interpret this doctrine a little bit differently than I do, but we both agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. His word is law to us. It is life to us, and we will live it together as a family that loves Christ and loves one another above all else. Well, and you help lead us in that, Bob, so well. And I think only in God's sweet providence would he design it so that a counselor, a biblical counselor, would become our chief parliamentarian because you understand that our polity is all about how those relationships mm-hmm. carry out the gospel. So you're just a great bridge builder between how we get things done, and those relationships required to get things done where our common theology helps us move together in a common mission and figure out how to do that in right relationship with one another. My wife put the explanation point on what I was just talking about because I told you my wife and I would have to pray about this job. And she came home and I told her about it, and she says, well, of course you're going to take it. It's the EPC. (laughs) And that was... Her exclamation point is just the closure of that statement that, that I made. That both of us love this denomination because it's hardly a denomination as much as it is a very large interconnected family. Amen. Amen. All right, let me just remind you of Bob's famous quote as we close out. Polity is the means by which we apply scripture and our confessional standards to meet the mission to which God has called us. And we're so grateful that God has called Bob Garment as our chief parliamentarian to help us do just that. So, Bob, thank you again, as always, for coming in, not only in serving our stated clerks this week and myself in this office, but by taking the time out to be a guest on In All Things. My pleasure. All right, my friends, that wraps up another conversation for today. And my encouragement would be, if you're in the EPC family of churches, would you take this podcast and send it to your clerk of session? That's my request. And I know our family in Puerto Rico, our three churches in Puerto Rico, they, they listen to these every week, Bob. They're going to be so excited to hear your voice on here. And they share it with all of their elders. But if you're listening today, would you just forward the the link for this podcast onto your clerk of session of your local congregation or the leader who comes alongside the pastor and helps them to navigate getting stuff done in the church. I hope it would be a, a blessing to them as they hear how the EPC family of churches loves one another and goes about doing our business.
All right, my friends, let's finish with that good word from God's word, as always, that you might be blessed. I believe God's word goes forth and accomplishes the purposes for which it has been established, and it will not return void. So receive this word as your blessing as you go into the day. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and therefore him. He is before all things, my friends, and in him, that is in our Lord Jesus Christ, all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, the church. Until the next time when we gather and have a conversation in this venue, I bid grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of the entire team, please join us for our next episode. For more information about the EPC, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.